This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. Mayville State University has a strong reputation for its teacher education programs, which prepare students for careers in early childhood, elementary, secondary, and special education. The university also has several partnerships with local schools that provide students with hands-on teaching experiences prior to graduation. Here to bring us up to date on the state-of-the-art teaching program at Mayville State University is Dr. Yvonne Cannon, Assistant Professor in the Division of Education at Mayville State. Welcome. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We're happy to have you. I think this is a timely topic for a lot of reasons. We hear a lot of issues surrounding teachers, not just here in North Dakota, but across the country. And we'll have an opportunity, I think, to talk about quite a few of those issues, Dr. Cannon. But first, what's your history with education? So I'm a North Dakota girl, grew up in North Dakota in Valley City, and um, graduated with a teaching degree from Valley City State University in 1989, and had the opportunity to work in three different school districts in um, Minnesota for 28 years, uh, teaching various grades and also subbing for four of those years. And so I got to uh, be in the um, pre-K scenario as well as elementary and also high school. My last uh, three years within those 28 years were as a lead specialist and reading interventionist, and I helped train teachers and develop an intervention program for the last district that I was in. How many teachers are there in North Dakota? Do we know? So from Ballotpedia.org, they stated that there were approximately like around 9,000 of them, like in 9,300 in public schools across the state of North Dakota. And of those, I'd like to say, um, as talking to Dr. Pam Johnson, our dean of division and education, said approximately 800 of those teachers are Mayville State grads. Where does Mayville State's program fit into training teachers for the state, for the region? Well, you know, Mayville State University started as a normal school, as did many of our uh, universities that service our students. And um, so teacher education really is at the root and heart of uh, where we started at our foundational roots. And so as we have expanded, we've kept in contact with our stakeholders at the state level and our partners as well to make sure that we are training our teachers, reframing our program to make sure that we are meeting the needs of what is out there currently and the issues that have emerged as a result of some of those issues. We'll get a chance to talk about specifically some of those issues in mm-hmm. just a moment, but I have to believe, being a layman looking from the outside in at your vocation, mm-hmm. Things are changing and have changed in how teachers are trained. Give us an overview. So one of the big things, you know, we can't really talk about changes unless we talk about COVID. Sure, (laughs) sure. COVID had really brought to the forefront um, because we had to shut our schools down and educate students at home how technology would come into play for that virtual learning opportunity. And then how do we even the playing field for all students moving forward so that they can get that education while people are trying to get the pandemic under control. And so as we moved out of that and continued to work with our partners, we are keenly aware of the fact that technology and that incident in itself, that pandemic, has changed the face of education for the long run. We are now seeing virtual e-learning days due to weather so that we don't know, we don't no longer have the opportunity for some of our kiddos to experience what a true snow day was like back in our day when we would listen to the radio and wait for the cancellation. So we can have uninterrupted time, but the preparation for those types of things need to also come on our end for our students so that when they um, leave us and they become licensed teachers, they are ready for the realities of the profession that come with that technology and those e-learning virtual days. Kind of off script here just a little bit, but do we know how serious of an impact COVID learning may have been for kids that are now matriculating through the system? What have we learned? So um, I think the discussions that we have, although I don't have the research at the moment to back it up, but the discussions that we have in our faculty are the fact that we are seeing, like when we were masked and our children were at daycare and we had to wear masks, um, our preschoolers definitely didn't get to see facial expressions. Um, Some of those social norms and expectations that our younger people missed in those critical first few years 
um, had to be taught again when they became face-to-face. And so I think some of those challenges about communication and social manners and, and being able to get along and collaborate for our young people have been challenges because they were isolated during that time. So as we talk about that, we talk about how in our classes for our teacher prep students that those are some things that we need to keep in mind if we're looking at students who may have some challenges ahead of them or may be presenting um, some academic uh, deficiencies as well. Teachers are taught, I would assume, in many ways that are similar and in some ways that are different depending on what university mm-hmm. a student goes to. Mm-hmm. Give us a feel for how a student is taught at Mayville University compared to maybe how a teacher is taught to teach in Colorado or New Hampshire or elsewhere. So um, we have national and state standards that all universities in North Dakota, you know, that we follow. And so the difference, um, the differences in standards is not that... Um, pronounced because we are all trying to become keep our accreditation. We have an accrediting entity called uh, CAPE, which is the Council for the Accreditation of Educator Preparation. And those standards are things that we have to prove when they come and do their visits to make sure that we keep our accreditation, that they can give us their stamp of approval. As far as North Dakota, uh, we have ESPB, which is the North Dakota Education Standards and Practices Board, as well as um, we attend to the Department of Public Instruction. Those two entities really do uh, work closely with us to make sure that we are meeting um, their requirements for teacher licensure as well. So we consistently look to what they want um, the teachers to have in order to be licensed because that's what we do. Are there states where is there reciprocity that is available to students who may have gotten a degree in Minnesota mm-hmm. or Wyoming or elsewhere and now want to teach here in North Dakota? Um, so reciprocity, there may be some state tests that they may have to complete. We work really closely with our students from out of state to make sure that they have that information available to them so that they can do that transition with, with ease so that there are no, there's no, um, none of our teacher students are left behind. <laughs> Dr. Cannon, is the workforce in North Dakota aging, and is that concerning? So the average age of teachers for both national and North Dakota, according to a 2017 um, Department of Ed report, was that it's, the average age is about 42, but the burnout rate now is about 50%. The, what, is, what does that mean, okay. burnout rate? Burnout rate means like... Um, if you think about workforce burnout, it means you're tired. You know, you can't handle the, and maybe not handle it, but the, the load is so high for not only um, expectations and how you carry it out. Um, a lot of research has been done, and I used this in my dissertation recently, about resilience and grit and persistence. And over a period of time, sometimes that, um, that wears you down. And so we can see that that burnout rate of 50% means that teachers are leaving the profession, not because they don't love it, but because the expectations are such where they kind of need a break. Is there then a teacher shortage in North Dakota? Yes, there is a teacher shortage. In fact, the Education Standards and Practices Board, ESPB, has listed all content areas as critical shortage areas now. So basically there is no... Um, teacher position that's untouched by critical shortage in the state of North Dakota. So what do your students think about that? Is it like, I'm going to get a job? Is that a positive or? You know, they look at it as a very positive aspect. I mean, they understand the concerns of it because once they become licensed teachers and get the job, they're already seeing in their field experiences that are weaved throughout our program the fact that if they're with a licensed teacher, let's say, in their student teaching experience and our student teachers have their subbing licenses where um, that teacher might have to go and cover for another teacher that they can't get a substitute teacher for. Mm-hmm. So they are understanding the complexities of what the teacher shortage is doing in the state as far as um, wearing multiple hats having to cover multiple areas at one time, and also covering for each other when they just need a sick day. 
We're enjoying our conversation with Dr. Yvonne Cannon, Assistant Professor in the Division of Education at Mayville State University, talking about how teachers are trained here in North Dakota today. I want to dive a little bit deeper into the teacher shortage question. Mm -hmm. You talked a little while ago about teacher burnout. Mm -hmm. I want to know what else is impacting that, um, if I could. And let's start with salary. Where does North Dakota rank? And what are your thoughts about that? So the salary actually is pretty comparable. Um, If you look at uh, study.com in 2020, listed state pay um, across the United States. And just the average starting pay for North Dakota was listed at $40,106, Minnesota at $40,310. And that's the starting pay. Um, South Dakota came in a little bit less than that, but when you, um, if you were to go ahead and get your master's, those all leveled out pretty evenly as well. So North Dakota forty three thousand nine hundred sixty, South Dakota forty three thousand nine hundred four, Minnesota forty five thousand four hundred thirty two. So Minnesota was a little bit higher, but not out of the ballpark. Do we think those salaries are such that they're attracting students, or is it prohibiting students from considering the major? So um, in my experiences, our pre-service teachers rarely talk about the pay. They're very passionate about um, the profession they've chosen. Our younger students especially usually have um, relatives in the field already, so they've kind of grown up in the culture and have assisted their parents in classrooms and with preparation, and they they know a lot about it and are familiar with it, and so they want to make that difference. A lot of our um, online students are already working in school systems as paraprofessionals, and what they see just affirms the fact that they they know this is the profession for them. So rarely does salary come into play. It's more about um, the job itself and the self-satisfaction that they're going to get from contributing. What about affordable housing? Is that an issue? What about child care? Yeah. Is that an issue? Yeah. And so I can speak about um, our students who take our courses. I don't really know about uh, what's happening for our, you know, teachers that are currently in the field. But what one of our things in uh, – one of our philosophies at Mayville State University really centers around personal service. When you talk to any faculty on campus, personal service really comes up a lot. And so we, since we're a small university, we really get to know our students on a more personal level, and they feel comfortable coming forward if they have barriers that we we can help them break down or if they um, can't make it to class. You know, just even little things, just that we can help uh, support them with. Many of our online students who are older students um, do have families, and they are trying to juggle their family life. They're also working full-time, so they have a work life, and then they have um, their school life. And so normally we talk about the home, you know, the work life, the home life versus the work-life balance, but they have the additional school expectation as well, that that role of being a student and those expectations that come with it. So we do a really uh, great job of working together and collaborate to support our students across whatever needs that they seem to have. Tragically, in the news, we've heard about school violence, Mm -hmm. school safety issues. Has that impacted, in your eyes, young people's choice on whether to become a teacher? So the younger pre-service teachers, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've brought those... Uh, scenarios up for them, and they are aware when they go into their field experiences that there are protocols in place. Um, Fortunately, it has not deterred them from the decision to become a teacher. They really want to be change agents and advocates for kids, and we talk a lot about, amongst our faculty, about being dedicated kid watchers to our students and looking for those signs. One of the things, uh, trainings that our teachers, not just our teachers, but teachers across the state of North Dakota are doing trauma, um, trauma-informed training. And so that's to help uh, key into some of the behaviors that students might have that we can be looking for to be proactive to divert some of those school violence types of scenarios. Are there enough partnerships that you have in place that really do give 
your students an adequate hands-on experience? Do they know what they're coming into? Are they prepared? We call them realities of the profession. Reality checks. (laughs) Yeah, realities of the profession because, you know, when they come up, when our students start, especially our ones that are straight out of high school and they come in, you know, that's a culture change being on campus. And um, the realities of the profession have to do more with um, the expectations rather than just the what they are aware of based on their own experiences in their own classrooms being a student. And so we wait, we weave through our entire program from the time that they are admitted into the teacher education program, multiple opportunities to go into various partnership schools. Um, even on our, during our online uh, experiences for our students, they also have field experiences where we reach out to partnerships. So we have partnerships that aren't just local around North Dakota, but across the state, as well as we have some partnerships um, nationally and internationally. Wow. So that's pretty impressive for us. The international, I think we have like two international partners, but still very impressive for a small university that really is interested in impacting the field of education. Who is the typical education major at Mayville State University? So we don't have a typical education major anymore. More men, more women? Um, I would say more women, typically, definitely more women. But age-wise and other demographics, um, we service all sorts of students who want to make that impact. And so I don't have specific demographic information for you or data to collect, but I do know from my own experiences, we have all age levels from all over the United States as well as all over the state of North Dakota in our online courses. So our perspective really is to make that impact globally and to provide um, all of our students, no matter which modality they choose, the best opportunity we can to make them amazing teachers. Are teachers also coming into the profession as a second career? In other words, they may have been a coder or they may have been in business Mm -hmm. or anything, but now have decided, you know what, I'm 45 years old. Mm -hmm. I've got some more gas in the tank. I want to become a teacher. Do you see older people coming back to teaching, so to speak? Yeah, uh, most of what we're seeing right now are a lot of students working in the schools as paraprofessionals or librarians, for example, and then have been motivated by what they see uh, in in the classrooms. And so they're coming back. Another one, you know, we are a profession of service. And so we service um, children, students, young students. And so the and this is just from my own experiences. I see a lot of nurses that travel into the teaching profession and kind of the same way the other way, like some will leave the teaching profession to go into nursing. Continue with service. Yes, continue with that service. I think there's a lot of parallels. I have many friends that are in the nursing profession, and there are a lot of parallels between the trainings that we do for um, our nursing students and our uh, education students. So it's kind of a, a neat phenomenon to see. When I think of teacher training, I think of someone who's prepared to go teach in the public school system. Mm -hmm. But there are also parochial schools and private schools. Mm -hmm. Have the, I guess, the increased number of private schools impacted the way teachers are trained? No, it hasn't. We prepare our teachers for any of those scenarios because we still have to follow the standards that are laid out for us so that we can stay accredited. So um, the teacher trainings that we provide, we do talk about the different types of uh, schools that are out there, but basically we, we lean on our conceptual framework. And our conceptual framework at Mayville State University is the reflective experiential teacher. So it really has to do with looking within at what our practices are across our knowledge, skills, and dispositions. Those are really our expectations for our students and what we have to show that they are able to do as they leave our program and become licensed teachers. What do you tell teachers today, Dr. Cannon, about how they will be evaluated? How will they be told whether they're doing a good job or not? So that has changed over the years, too. You know, starting back in teaching in 1989, um, I just remember my principal coming in 
and evaluating us um, three times a year. And with the in a, you know with the new initiatives that have come out, we have professional learning communities now where uh, faculty is taking an active part in um, going into classrooms. There's also something called learning walks that teachers and administrators can do together. It kind of depends on the format and what the schools are are digging into as far as supporting teachers. It has changed. I believe the mindset has really changed from an administrator perspective of what's happening in your classroom to a collaborative effort of supporting teachers. We have a couple minutes left, Dr. Cannon, and mm-hmm. there's a couple of other issues I want to talk about. How are teachers trained today to communicate with parents? It seems to me maybe that it's different than it was back in my day. Mm-hmm. When if a teacher had a problem, I got a phone call. Um, and we were going to deal with the problem, perhaps. Um, But maybe things have changed. Are teachers trained differently on how to visit with parents and how to help parents? Right. There are so many more stakeholders involved now with schools. Um, We have seen a rise in parental involvement and wanting to know, and, and guardians too. There are all types of families out there who are interested in what their children are doing in school. And so to prepare our teachers... It really relates back to teaching them dispositions. Many of our teachers are able to sit in on multiple stakeholder meetings, such as um, parent-teacher conferences when they're student teaching. And the mentor-teacher is essential and critical in modeling those types of conversations. Other conversations that we have with administrators, we invite um, guest speakers into our classrooms as well to articulate some of those communication positives as well as how to professionally handle some of those more challenging conversations that they may encounter. Are students facing more mental health challenges and how are teachers prepared to help them? Thinking mostly of social media. Oh, and social media too. You know, when we talk about social media uh, with our pre-service teachers, we talk about it a lot as a resource and a tool. Most of our younger pre-service teachers are very familiar with all of the different platforms that are out there. And so um, even with our online older, no matter which students we have, we try to divert um, those uses into useful ways of collaborating with other teachers across the globe, um, getting ideas from each other, and also just um, thinking of ways that we can connect with and show positive things that schools are happening. Because right now there's a lot of negative media out there about what's going on in schools. And I really would like us to highlight some of the positives as well. Just briefly, what about the students who are struggling with Mm -hmm. online bullying and those things? How Mm -hmm. are teachers trained today to help? So trauma-informed training is one of the ones that is at the forefront of that. And so while our students don't have that formal training, we do bring up those uh, initiatives that schools are using for professional development to our students as well so that they can dig into those and have some kind of footing to springboard off of in order to understand what schools are doing to help support those uh, struggling mentally in the classroom. Dr. Yvonne Cannon, Assistant Professor in the Division of Education at Mayville State University. Thank you so much for joining us on Main Street. Thank you so much for having me. The news is next. Good afternoon from the Prairie Public Newsroom. I'm Todd McDonald. The North Dakota House has approved $500,000 in state general funding for the construction of the Fisher House in Fargo. The Fisher House is like a Ronald McDonald House for families of veterans who are going under serious medical treatment at the VA hospital in Fargo. Fargo Republican Representative Michelle Strinden is the lead sponsor of House Bill 1157. She told the House the first Fisher House was built about 30 years ago when John and Elizabeth Fisher were at the Walter Reed Hospital. She says they noticed family members of veterans were sleeping on couches and in their vehicles, which the Fishers found unacceptable. Since that time, more than 80 Fisher Houses have been built in the U.S. and military posts around the world, but not in North Dakota. Strinton says the Fargo VA Hospital has the largest footprint of any VA hospital in the nation. She says it serves veterans across North Dakota, as well as 18 counties in western Minnesota, and one county 
in South Dakota. Many veterans travel up to 300 miles away to receive care in Fargo, but where do their families stay during these medical emergencies? The cost of a hotel during a 7 to 10 day stay is very expensive. Strindon says more than $7 million in private funding has been raised for the project. She says the 2023 special session set aside half million dollars in America Recovery Plan Act dollars and the state dollars that will match that. Groundbreaking is scheduled sometime in May of 2024. The North Dakota House has passed a measure to close the state employee's defined benefit retirement plan and require new hires after January 1, 2025 to be on a defined contribution plan. The rationale for the change is that the current plan faces a big unfunded liability. The bill would use legacy fund earnings to make sure current retirees will be paid what they expect from a defined benefit plan. House Majority Leader Mike LaFour of Dickinson told the House, To continue down the road of a defined benefit is like buying two tickets on the Titanic knowing full well what's going to happen. It's a terrible strategy. But Grand Forks Democratic Representative Corey Mock says legislature had been aware of the unfunded liability since 2008. He said the legislature had a plan at that time to make it whole, but didn't follow through. This is a crisis of our own creation, intentionally done, so that we could be in a place to look at the fund and say, it's underfunded, we have no choice, but to use state dollars, legacy fund earnings, whatever it is, to close this out, it's our only path forward. The bill is House Bill 1040 and passed on a 76 to 16 vote. It'll now be considered by the Senate. The Senate has passed measure, authored by Bismarck Republican Senator Sean Cleary, to keep the defined benefit plan in place, but give state workers an option to have a defined contribution plan. And from the Prairie Public Newsroom, I'm Todd McDonald. Support for Prairie Public is provided by the Bush Foundation, investing in great ideas and the people who power them in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, and the 23 Native nations that share that same geography. Learn more at bushfoundation.org. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. Dr. Travis Hoffman is an assistant professor and extension sheep specialist at North Dakota State University. We plan to visit now with Dr. Hoffman about the sheep industry here in North Dakota and in Minnesota and across the country and NDSU's extension office's role in supporting the industry. Dr. Hoffman, welcome to Main Street. Thanks for having me on Main Street. Yeah. Give us a little bit of your background, if you would. Uh, Kindly. So I grew up in South Dakota, uh, graduated from the northeast part uh, from Redfield High School, and so wanted to be in agriculture. My family had a diversified livestock and grain operation with registered Cordale sheep, commercial cattle, and then crops and hay ground as well to support those livestock. I went to South Dakota State University and completed a bachelor's degree in animal sciences. And at the end of four years there, I I still uh, wanted to to learn a little bit more and to uh, challenge myself as well. And so I went to Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, Spent some time in the beef cattle industry uh, working for the animal sciences program and then completed a Ph.D. program as well at Colorado State University. And so I've been at the opportunity at North Dakota State University and the University of Minnesota as our extension sheep specialist since June of 2016. So uh, enjoying my experiences here and again of uh, being in Bison Nation and also as a golden gopher and have that unique opportunity to have a, a shared role uh, that reaches out to both North Dakota and Minnesota producers. If you were to tell me in further detail what your role is as an extension sheep specialist, what would you tell me? Well, I like to be a resource, okay? And so if we think about it from academics and uh, from education as well, is that we don't always have the answers, but some of the times that we do, and if not, uh, we want to be able to to answer those questions that we may have. Now, whether that is a person that is interested in diversifying into sheep and or goats uh, on their operation, or if it's a young person that wants to be involved, uh, saying, you know what, we're moving closer to lambing here. Now we're in, in February and saying, what are we trying to do? What are the what are the things, the tools, the information and equipment that I should have in my kit so that I can move forward? Where are we going to be at this uh, summer? Okay, And so we hope that we get to a point that we can provide some profitability back into our sheep industry and, and kind of think through some of the decisions of whether they have feed that's available, 
Uh, do we keep those a little bit longer? Do we capitalize on them now in some of the spring markets? And so trying to hit what we can and most importantly, be a resource for scientifically based information uh, and try to help our people out as best we can. If you were to tell me current trends relative to the sheep industry, is the industry holding steady in decline? Is the industry volatile? What would you tell me? Okay, so so thanks so much. So a couple different things when we look at this. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, it has been just a little bit volatile here in our sheep industry from a live lamb standpoint. And that's simply supply and demand. We could talk about that here in a little bit more. But I want to touch on a couple things. Uh, first off, when you're talking about trends is talk about products, okay? And so that's how I envision uh, what happens in our sheep industry is where we're at on products. Now, one of the first ones that I'm going to bring up is is sheep milk. And, and I also, when I was hired for this position, you know, it says sheep extension specialist, but I get to work with goat producers as well. And when you think about it from either sheep or goats, is that some may prefer to, to go down the venture of dairy. Now, I'm not saying that that's the answer for everybody. In fact, that uh, needs to take some coordination, uh, but those are more targeted. When we look at it from wool of our other product uh, that we do produce, primarily, uh, of course, from our sheep, or if we have some goats, we have some fibers as well. Uh, but that one's been a little depressed lately. And I would say that wool is focused on a global market. And so if we don't have good interactions and good trade partnerships with particularly China and India, then we become challenged. And so a lot of the people that would produce sheep in this north central region, the wool is truthfully not worth the value that it takes to have the sheep shear come there. Wow. So when we focus on that and realizing, okay, we're probably not going to go dairy and you know, we're certainly not going to pay the bank back on our wool, is that we need to look where we can be on our lamb production. And so the trends that I would say is that historically in the sheep industry, uh, people would have their use and hopefully aim for 150% lamb crop. Okay. And that's not uh, 1.5 lambs uh, per ewe uh, because they can't have that, but that means one of them had one, right, Craig, and one of them had two, and so that gets us to three lambs out of those two ewes, Um, but uh, can take those to potentially a feeder weight. And so historically here in North Dakota, some of those have been at 60 to 90 to even up to 100 pounds of feeder lambs. Uh, But other people may wish to feed those to 130, 150 pounds. And so I'll say that the industry as a whole there, as we think about it in trends, uh, is becomes very segmented of those that actually now go through the historical sheep production and sell those lambs at 130 to 150 pounds. Or what's really changing if we're talking about trends in the sheep industry is that our, there's our non-traditional market or purchasing lambs or goats for ethnic holidays. So a lot of times on festivities, uh, people are looking for 60, 70, 80 pound, either sheep or goats uh, that they can have, uh, you know, because of, as part of their ethnicities and traditions and religion is that they're going to have sheep and they're going to have lambs. And so that's one of the things that really, really has changed the focus. And now some would say that more than half of the lambs that are born in the United States are going to our non-traditional market. Do you anticipate the wool market changing? I think it's a a long-term approach, okay? And so what we can say is that wool has done well in terms of a fashion garment. And in fact, it's opened into new retail sectors, okay? And so, Craig, no one ever thought, uh, at least in a previous time, that you would wear a wool undergarment, like Under Armour, okay? We can do that now. And so to be able to have wool garments that are breathable, that you can wear uh, in the warm weather and they wick away moisture or you can wear in the cold, um, that's that's a great opportunity. And we have a great opportunities in terms of socks as well. We're just going to need to continue to motor, motor that. And there's so few wool processing plants in the United States that it becomes a global issue. And so I guess if I was running the balance sheet, I'd say let's make more lambs. Let's make them healthier. Let's get them to market at a quicker and more efficient spot. Then we can pay those bills, make them a little bit more profitability. I remember the marketing campaign, where's the beef? Right. But I don't think of one for sheep or the industry. Well, thanks. Okay. And so I work closely with the American Lamb Board, and we talked about trends and ideas of what's going on, and I didn't give nearly the credit that I should uh, to what my most important passion is, and that's the lamb meat. Okay. And so when we think about it, lamb can be young sheep, but when I think about it, I think of about a center of meat protein. 
And so LAM and the American Lamb Board, which I work closely with, uh, their slogan is feed your adventurous side. Now I know. See, there you go. Feed your adventurous side. And in fact, I was challenged on my PhD program and said, what what would the uh, topic or what would the slogan be? And I said uh, a long time ago now, uh, I said it was excite your palate. So if that ever makes it, uh, then I should have got it trademarked. Uh, But I think that that's where LAM has... Uh, a unique opportunity. And so big picture there, and even when we talk about it from coronavirus 19, uh, is that there was a shift. And so when we talk about the sheep and lamb industry is that we had a market shock, okay? And so some of the lambs that were there weren't able to be harvested or processed, and that kind of hit all of our protein sectors. But once we got past those first couple months and the market shock is that People stayed at home, and we know that um, in post, uh, at least at the beginning there of COVID-19 through calendar year 2020, calendar year 2021, uh, and people didn't want just barbecues, okay? And people didn't just want the pork chop, and and so a lot of creativity happened at home. In fact, I would be one of those as well, and, and I totally believe as we think about it from protein is that, and just society is that food is the new rock star, okay? Um, there are reasons that people watch the Food Network, the cooking channel. In fact, just this past week, I saw one where uh, they were challenged with a high-end dinner, and you know the cooking shows to try to make those happen. And the three people that were remaining all went to the back of the grocery store, and all three of them grabbed lamb rack. And so they're out there, they're doing it, and I totally believe that our lamb uh, as a commodity, is is hitting that center of the plate, and we got a lot of promise to move forward with. We might have listeners who have never tried lamb. They're going to take their first bite. What are you going to tell them to expect? Awesome. Um, so I love it when we get to do that. And so there, with lamb, you're going to have a, just a little bit more of a distinct flavor, okay, that comes with uh, our mm-hmm. lamb and our, our sheep products. Um, but also, it's one that's rich in flavor. And so a lot of times when I think of, of lamb is I think you can have a smaller portion size but still feel full or satiated. And so what I say if you're going to purchase lamb is whether that's just a ground product uh, or a cut is to certainly keep it simple. Uh, and I say that you can provide garlic, uh, provide rosemary, and provide salt and pepper. And that will get you as far as you need. You can find uh, different issues or or recipes that may put you on a different path. But, man, that allows that lamb flavor uh, to take on what it is of, of the vessel and, and allow it to be itself. I see a chef for hire right, in your right, future here. Right. At least it's a passion, and you got to have that. I think when I uh, – again, I'm trained as a meat scientist, so I'm lucky that's that's my game That's uh, of bringing that back. And so that's how I think of uh, from a meat science standpoint of how do we work with our – people in the production system so that we can make products that meet the highest end of eating satisfaction. Because if we don't have consumers, when we're raising beef cattle or swine or chickens or sheep or goats, uh, then we're not focused on the right direction. We're enjoying our conversation with Dr. Travis Hoffman. He's an assistant professor and extension sheep specialist at North Dakota State University. Dr. Hoffman, if I'm a young person... Can I make it as a sheep rancher? Well, Craig, you are a young person. There you go. Aren't we all? Okay. So uh, thanks so much. And so a couple of things is is that when one makes it into a new venture or wishes to get funding for working with the bank and, and uh, trying to maintain some profitability, I think sheep and or goats, but also uh, their sheep allows us that chance to, to get in at a smaller uh, input cost than it would be to put up a, a couple million dollar swine barn or working with the dairy operations in terms of labor force. And so you can have smaller numbers. And in fact, a lot of the numbers that we have for our small farmers and ranchers in this whole north central region, I'll call that North Dakota, Minnesota, and South Dakota, is a, most people have about 25 to 50 head. Okay. And so from an input cost, uh, certainly uh, we have the opportunity to go to the bank and say, well, this is what we need to get started. A tremendous opportunity that we have in North Dakota is that we have the North Dakota Lamb and Wool Producers Association sponsored starter flock. And so every single year now, for 14 years, we have provided 10 ewes uh, to those young people, okay? And so from ages 8 to 18, and to get uh, an application, those are on our North Dakota Lamb and Wool Producers Association website. Um, they can go there at ndsheep.org. 
but one of the things that we can do is then we offer those 10 head and then they return that back on a discounted loan system and actually pay back 70% of the equity. So over the three years. And so we have programs that, man, it's so exciting when we have people that can be involved with our sheep industry. And we hope that it if that's something that they can learn life lessons from, if it's something that they can build equity so that they can move on either in terms of their career or their education post high school graduation, um, but then uh, just simply enjoying what they're doing on the sheep production and, and being a better part of our society uh, because we teach hard work. And at that point, we're teaching finances as well. So I think that there's some opportunity. We're at about a dollar thirty cents per pound of live weight lambs right now. Uh, but we're hoping and uh, we believe that it's going to trend upward here throughout the spring and throughout the summer and we can maintain profitable levels. Give us some insight on what it's like to be a sheep producer from sunup to sundown. What, what should I expect? Well, um, be careful here because it depends on what level that we want uh, <clears throat> for that part of your income. So I'm going to start with what the majority of our people are, and that's the people that I said that maybe have 20 to 50 head of use. And so those that have 20 and 50 head of use probably get up early and get feed to those use and lambs and make sure that the water is not frozen. And then most of those individuals will have an off-site job, okay? And so then they will go and, and spend their day and then come back and check in. And so it takes some dedication. It's not when you just get back from the time that you put in through the day and, well, you know what? Chores happen. Now, I grew up on uh, the agricultural spot, and again, in South Dakota, where agriculture and, uh, and the livestock and the crops were everything, right? That's, that's what my dad did. That's what my mom did. That's luckily from a, a labor standpoint. That's what myself, the eldest of four children, got to do, right? Um, and so then it's when you get home from school. But I think that to be, uh, to be solely based in terms of sheep enterprise as your whole uh, financial gain, I think that'd be a little challenging. And that's why I'm more so I work with people that want to diversify uh, their operations. But I will tell you that if uh, individuals get to 300 head, 400 head, 500 head, and there are some that do that here in, in North Dakota, South Dakota more so, uh, and then Minnesota as well. Um, but from that standpoint, it's going to be based on seasons. So right now, January, February, March, April, maybe even if they so aspire, that's when we're working on lambing, all right? And so we're trying to get as many lambs out and as healthy as they can and getting them in the right standpoint and, and growing. When we think about it from a summer standpoint, uh, there is grazing of making sure early that, uh, that we keep the fences good and identify how we're going to keep our animals in from fences. And then we're going to wean those lambs. And then we might be, uh, if we were to keep them longer, um, feeding those lambs a, a more energy-based and feedlot diet if they so aspire. And, of course, we've already, that summer and fall, got those used bread for the next round. And so it depends on what you want to do. But most so in in this region, sheep are part of a diversified agriculture standpoint. you got to put up hay, too. Don't forget that. If we're going to do that, uh, we got to put up hay during the summer. Climate-wise, is North Dakota ideal for sheep ranching? Is it challenging, more challenging here than it might be somewhere that's a little more temperate? Craig, if, uh, <clears throat> if we're to be real with ourselves, I'm well aware that we all had to step over some snowbanks to get to wherever we needed to go, right? Uh, and so we've gotten a little bit more snow. What I can tell you uh, is that in relation to it, I'm going to uh, pull together and aggregate both sheep and goat production in this, is that you need to have some facilities. And so thanks for bringing that up. If we describe of what we want to do, we need to know that we have access to a barn, uh, hopefully one that we can provide some heat to or at least minimize the wind um, for cold and wintry times uh, that we can have them shelter for the animals. Now, sheep as well are, are certainly more hardy and more resilient than we give them credit for. Um, because even when it's cold in the sunshine, if you put a bale of alfalfa or a bale of hay outside, you know what? They want to be outside just as much uh, as as or more as uh, as when it would be during the summer, okay? And so they know, you know what? This is what we're built for. And so there is some resiliency then and some uh, some sustainability to our sheep operations. But those young lambs, young goats, uh, we want to take a little bit better care of them because they're just so fragile. 
it, what's your role in the state's 4-H program? Awesome. So I really enjoy the 4-H program. And in fact, uh, my loving and caring wife, Megan, is also a full-time employee and a state specialist in our 4-H program. But I get to help uh, both with some of the exhibits, okay? First off, some of the exhibits and the sheep that uh, will be exhibited at either the county fairs or the North Dakota State Fair. And so I serve as the ringman um, for our 4-H show at the North Dakota State Fair, um, but also answering questions. And so I think that we've also kind of made the shift, and I think that this is a correct and appropriate as we think about it from 4-H, is that it's not just the county fair. And so I often thought it was when I was growing up, like, this is what we do. This is why they have ribbons, okay? And this is why they have the trophy that you're striving for. But it's so much more than that. And I think that one of the things that was a tremendous positive for my role as the extension sheep specialist is that coronavirus 19 and what happened during that allowed new opportunities that weren't mainstream before. And I say that because we could travel to Dickinson, North Dakota, or travel um, to Rugby, North Dakota, or to Ellendale, North Dakota. And we got interaction with those um, 4-H'ers and interaction with the producers that uh, that are locally in the area. But one of the things now is that we built webinar series and programs. And so we're now on month 28.5. <laughs> I don't know. Who's uh, counting? Right? It doesn't matter anymore. Um, but now we have the expectation because we have over 1,500 people on our email listserv and they are from all across America. And that's a group that I've primarily worked with with the University of Minnesota's extension uh, sheep and goat team. Uh, but we have meetings and webinars that we try to host once a month uh, to ask what those questions are. And one of those, you know, that's going to be upcoming is, you know, how can wool be a larger part of the industry? The thing that I didn't touch on there, Craig, when we come back to wool is that I was talking about the commercial industry. What there is is tremendous promise for our artisanal um, wool producers of making wool dryer balls mm. and, you know, mm. uh, Christmas tree ornaments and um, liners for your shoes, they'll be comfort and so and soaps and so th- there is a whole bunch of promise and there's a lot of people, particularly in our northern part of Minnesota, that's uh, capitalizing on that. Um, and so we've gotten some opportunities as well there to kind of dig and make it a, a little bit more outside the box thinking. And what are the um, land and water requirements for sheep producers? Good. So I said that we need facilities um, there during the winter, but during the summer. Uh, open water, okay, and having a tank and, of course, uh, having the water tanks that hopefully don't freeze up during the winter for us, right, and have access to that. But what I would say is that we have a couple options. You can provide corn and a grain-based concentrate for those animals. Uh, and that's certainly on a price-per-pound standpoint, cheaper and a better option. And then when we keep those animals during the winter, we're going to need hay. But when we get to the summer, okay, and it's going to be a great one because we can see it. The days are getting longer. It must be around the corner. Um, But uh, I would say that access to uh, some acres of land that can either be grass or legumes uh, allow those animals to to make progress as well. And lots of opportunities, even from a grazing standpoint. And one for entertainment as we close things up is that solar sites. Think about the energy in the solar uh, system. And so we're not going to grab on that very much, but there's been even a request for up to a million head of sheep across America to help to graze those solar sites. And we're only at 5 million head in the United States right now. So globally, we're not at the top. There's opportunity to grow, and we look forward to being a part of it. Appreciate that. Dr. Travis Hoffman is an assistant professor and extension sheep specialist at North Dakota State University. Thank you so much for joining us on Main Street. Thanks, Craig. Eat lamb and werewolf. <laughs> Dakota Daybook is next. Support for Prey Public is provided by North Dakota United, an organization of over 11,000 education and public employees serving the public every step of the way. Information available at ndunited.org. On Prairie Public Primetime TV tonight. The James Webb Space Telescope. Think about it as a telescope that enables us to see the hidden universe. Its mission is only beginning. Is there an Earth 2.0 out there? New Eye on the Universe on Nova. Watch Nova New Eye on the Universe tonight at 8 Central, 7 Mountain on Prairie Public. This is Dakota Datebook for February 22nd. In 1882, Emery Mapes, originally from Illinois, moved to Nelson County in Dakota Territory. He platted a town site next to the St. Paul-Minneapolis-Manitoba Railway. 
He hoped to build a thriving town named after himself. A depot, grain elevator, and post office were soon built. There was a population of 100 people by 1890, along with a school, grocery store, general store, hotel, saloon, blacksmith, and hardware store. Emery Mapes even published a town newspaper. For over 100 years, the tiny town of Mapes valiantly survived many fires. The first fire that started Mapes' decline happened in 1890, when Emery Mapes' barn burned down, killing over 100 cattle. So Emery Mapes packed up and left for Grand Forks, where he co-founded a milling company and created Cream of Wheat in 1893. He eventually moved to Minneapolis and died a millionaire in 1921. Fire after fire plagued Mapes over the following decades. The first church in Nelson County was in Mapes. It burned down in 1902. The general store burned in 1908, and the Harton Grain Company elevator followed suit in 1911. Mapes Hall, built in 1913, was another victim of fire, but was rebuilt in 1929. By 1960, the population was 55. In 1961, another elevator burned, and in 63, the Mapes School closed. It was torn down in 1976. That same year, a family home that housed the post office burned down, and while the post office found a new location, it still closed for good in 1980. By the early 80s, only eight residents were left. The town limped along into the 90s, with the Mapes Hall hosting events and the Old West Tavern drawing good business. But the Mapes Hall eventually closed, and the last grain elevator burned down in 1997. On this date, in 1998, the Bismarck Tribune reported that the Old West Tavern burned. All that was left was Mapes Hall, which had closed years earlier. And Mapes became a ghost town. Today's Decoded Date book was written by Trista Razor Sturza. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Decoded Date book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota, North Dakota's largest lifelong learning community. Arts programming on Prairie Public is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, a state agency developing, promoting, and supporting the arts in North Dakota. And that's a wrap for this edition of Main Street. Remember, you can listen to this interview again and all editions of Main Street at prairiepublic.org. Tomorrow on the show, we'll have our weekly conversation with root seller Sue Balcom. Have you noticed the price of potting mix these days? Filling up containers isn't cheap, and it can cost a small fortune to fill raised beds. Sue tells us how to slash our biggest garden expense. That's coming up tomorrow on Main Street. Thank you for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day.